Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Autocar Business Powerlist 100 podcast sponsored by Keyloop. In this special series, we will be looking at the challenges and opportunities facing the individuals on our Powerlist 100, a collection of the 100 most influential people within the automotive industry. I'm Mark Tishaw, editor of Autocar, and with me again today is Peter Campbell, the Financial Times' global motor industry correspondent. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. And Jackie Barker, the Global OEM Director at Keyloop. Welcome, Jackie. Thanks, Mark. Today, we are talking about Chinese car makers and the disruption they are having on, on the rest of the automotive world. So, Peter, the Chinese car industry, what stage of the development is it at? So, historically, uh, Chinese cars were never terribly good. Right? I remember... We had someone very senior from BMW in to the FT years ago, and he was saying they're very interested in what BYD is doing. And one of our senior writers who'd just come back from living in China said, I've just been driving BYD cars. They're not the future. But Chinese development has come on a long way. Now, China is the world's biggest car market. Most of the global car makers sell there. And in order to sell there, they had to set up JVs with local companies. And that meant that those Chinese companies were able to borrow and learn about that manufacturing technology. And as a result, Chinese cars are now very good. Right? The manufacturing standards are much higher. Um, the quality is better. The build quality is good. And then, of course, you come onto EVs. So China sort of missed the boat on engines. Its engines were never brilliant. But it realized that the world is going through decarbonization. It realized decades ago that this was happening. And so it has got very, very good at battery development. And that is what China is going to use in order to take on the world's car makers, right? And we're starting to see that now. We're starting to see Chinese car makers exporting to Europe. We're starting to see them exporting elsewhere with very, very good products and very competitive batteries. And even more than that, we're starting to see a huge number of Chinese battery companies selling batteries to the Western car makers. So that if you look at all of the battery factories going in across Europe, the largest number of them are Chinese, right? More than the Koreans, more than the Japanese, which means even if you drive a Peugeot in the future, it may very well have a Chinese battery in it. And that kind of matters. That matters because Europe at the world makes the best, and Europe at the moment makes the best engines in the world. And Detroit and Japan are on that podium as well. But China makes the world's best batteries. And if the engine is a soul of the car, as Enzo Ferrari once famously said, then what's the soul of an EV? Well, it's probably the battery. And so that changes what the Western car makers do, right? It, it changes them from being at the absolute top of the food chain to being hardware manufacturers and integrators using technology that is potentially Chinese. And that has huge geopolitical implications and huge implications for European R&D and European workforces, and the UK as well, of course. Um, and China has done this because it is a planned economy that can take very, very long-term views on things and doesn't have to worry about things such as elections that we have over here in Europe. Uh, now, that's a big, uh, potentially more holistic answer than you were looking for. But the, the too-long-didn't-read version is uh, they're very advanced, they're very good at batteries, and they're ready to take on the world. And it's happened very quickly, isn't it? Elsewhere in this series, we've talked about disruption. 
yeah, you know, the, the Chinese industry we were all first introduced to was through those joint ventures, but that was only a handful of years ago. This has happened quickly, hasn't it? If you look at the the speed that it takes, you know, normally to develop cars and have better iterations of technology, yeah, the development from China has been incredibly quick. And it was only a few years ago, you know, that people were saying, really, BOID, really? And yet, I remember when I talked to Herbert Deese last year when he was still the boss of Volkswagen. And it was off record, but he's left now, so I can say this. Um, I said, what are you, what were you most worried about? Which car company are you most worried about? And I thought he'd either say Tesla or Toyota once they pivot to EVs. And he, he said, no, BYD. He's most worried about BYD of any other car company in the world. And as we've seen, BYD is now ahead of Tesla and Bev's. You know, um, I remember seeing the BYD... European CEO a few months ago, and I said, where do you want to get to in Europe by 2030? And he went, number three, but maybe number one, right? I mean, just the ambition that these guys have, they've been very patient uh, in developing the technology, and they're now ready to push the button. And they've got huge ambition, and they've got the financial resources to do it, and the technology to do it. And it's going to be... uh, an absolute moment of change for the industry across Europe and wider afield as well, but particularly in Europe, because Europe at the moment is the, the kind of crucible of EV sales outside of China, which is driven by regulation, I know, but that is that means Europe is going to be the first region that will really feel the effect of the Chinese export boom that's coming. And the Chinese companies are, are dominant at home now, it's fair to say, but what, what stage are we at with their development Export-wise, uh, MG has done particularly well, but yeah. but you can't move for a, for a motor show now in Europe without seeing a BYD stand. It's been a, it's actually so China. We had the Munich Motor Show back in September, and China had, I think it was something like sixty percent of all the floor space was for Chinese manufacturers. So uh, they're clearly coming. I think it's actually also interesting why they're doing exports. So. You're right, they're much more dominant in the market. You know, Volkswagen used to account for one in five cars sold in China. And now their EV market share is about 4%. Even if it gets better, it's not going back to 20%. So, you know, all of the Western car makers and the other Asian car makers in China are feeling a real pinch, particularly on EVs. But Chinese China's car market is slowing down. China's EV market is slowing. It's growing, but it's slowing. Um, it's slowing the growth. And they have big factories and they want to export. And so that's why you're seeing a huge rush of exports at the moment. But they're also going to try and build factories in Europe. I mean, their planet, they're all looking. Neo, you know, BYD, all the others are looking at European factories as well to make locally. Partly that'll be to avoid tariffs. We'll come on to that. They're also potentially looking at U.S. localization as well. I saw over the weekend Neo was talking about potential U.S. localization of production. So it's not just Chinese exports. That'll be the first wave. But they're going to manufacture globally as well. Mm. Customers now, Jackie, are being given a choice of buying Chinese cars for the first time. Do customers care where their cars come from? That's a really good question. I think um, when you look at... What's happened in the UK car market, well, European car market, actually, over the last few years with COVID slowing down production and customers having to wait longer for new stock, it makes you question what you're waiting for and the value of what you're waiting for. So I think um, we've seen 
a real kind of economic turmoil in the last couple of years where you've had people with loads of money because they couldn't spend it anywhere to suddenly energy prices rising and people feel the pinch of a lot of that stuff. So it's um, we've seen extraordinary conditions and I think consumers are probably a lot less loyal than they used to be. And you also have the freedom of choice. Um, interestingly, we know that even though digital is driving a lot of the, the ways that car makers are putting their cars in front of consumers, when you're looking at something like an EV, you really need to make sure that you're making the right decision. So I don't think those decisions are taken lightly. And often the retailer will play a huge role in that education piece to help a consumer make a shift from a petrol to an EV. Actually, EV owners are often stopped when they're, they're at charging points to ask how they're getting on with their vehicles. So I think um, we, we sort of seek to understand before we make that change. But I think because there's so much choice now and what we're seeing is to your point, Peter, about volume, they have huge factories and the ability to create and generate a lot of volume, whether it's of the batteries themselves, but actually of the stock itself. Um, you're giving consumers the chance to buy something now rather than waiting six months. So we're also seeing a huge um, shift in the way that you can own and use vehicles. So I think that gives you the chance to try something without having to commit to it forever. It's not your forever car, it's the well, I'm going to see how I get on. And Aura have got, when you see what GWM have brought in, you've got Great Wall launching stock in the UK for 250 quid a month. It's quite an inexpensive option um, to put a consumer into an EV. So I think we're probably less brand loyal than we used to be. And also sometimes need will drive a decision. I think there's also a natural fickleness to the buying public and kind of apologies to any buying public listening to this. But if you remember back to when there were lots of uh, security concerns about Huawei and Huawei had technology in government buildings that was then stripped out and they were banned from the 5G network, people still bought Huawei phones because they were cheap and they worked very well. Um and so, you know, whatever concerns are going to be raised over China, Chinese batteries, Chinese brands, if the cars are cheaper and they still work very well, people will go and buy them. Is that price, is that the most compelling point of difference of all for Chinese cars with, with the car buying public? I think, I mean, there was a really interesting report, actually, Joto brought out a report recently about perception being the last barrier. And so just to your point as well, Peter, about there was a historic belief that the Chinese stock wasn't very good and it's very different now. So when you're sitting in it, the stitching's like Bentley like almost. It's beautiful and it's fi it's finely crafted. There are some great partnerships that we're seeing emerging. I also think that um price is all relative. <laughs> it's we see tech cycles shortening all the time and actually consumers aren't just driven by their experience in buying a vehicle, we're driven by our experience in buying everything else that we buy. Um, and those kind of goods and services are a lot more accessible and we buy them in very different ways. So I think price is never the reason why a sale of anything is made. It was one of the first things I learned um, in selling anything. So you buy for a number of different reasons. It could be convenience. I believe it's a good product. I'm reading reviews that tell me things are worth trying. So I don't think that price is really the reason. But I do think certainly cost of living will drive a consumer to make a more considered choice. And there's also a lot more education now about charging, the price of charging, because that's a hidden cost. So you see the price at the pump. And I remember pre-2008, bursting of bubbles, when the, the cost of filling up my car was over £100, and it felt really expensive. When you go to the supermarket, 
the price of shopping is feels really expensive because it goes over a certain amount and you think oh you notice it but what i think is really interesting is now there's a there's a more of an education around the cost of charging your vehicle at the minute you can go and have a home charger you don't think about how much it costs to it's almost like it's free plugging it in i don't think about it there isn't a hundred pounds going off my debit card when i go and fill up so i think how we make decisions as consumers is quite layered and it's when you're thinking about how you budget things monthly you're looking at a lot more of the minutiae of the detail about how you live and, and the kind of lifestyle that you have so i think prices is just one element and the price of the lease i think i was chatting to tom who's on one of the other podcasts with, that we were talking about the price of a of a bear versus a nice vehicle seems quite different so you can get you know, there could be 20 grand difference in, in, I won't mention the name of the manufacturer, but you can look at the petrol versus the EV equivalent. It's 20 grand more for the EV equivalent. So there has to be a really good reason for you to make that choice. The Chinese have also been very smart on pricing in mm. Europe. If you look at what BYD have done, for instance, most of their models are not bargain basement, even though they sell them for much less in China. They've priced them directly up against Volkswagen, which means that you sit in a you know an Atto 3 and you go huh, how does this compare to a VW? And it actually forces consumers to compare like for like because they don't think this is cheap Chinese tat. And when they do that, it comes out pretty well, right? I'm a, I'm a technological Luddite, right? And I drove an Atto 3 a few months ago and I could get my phone to connect and it just worked. And I've been in the equivalent of Volkswagen products and people will sit in the two and the Volkswagen does not come out as well, right? And that is the same for... Lots of brands as well that people will not buy them because they're cheaper. They'll buy them because on their first drive they'll think they're better. And this is this is what is so interesting about where the Chinese are, not just in battery development, but in technology development, in-car software, and experiences and everything else. You know, the cars are pretty good, mm. right? And so people will buy them not because they're cheaper, not because they're Chinese. They'll buy them because for the value they'll think they're better. Yeah. Why doesn't the established European car industry, like what these Chinese car companies are doing, on cost, on price, and what do they want done about it? Um, no one likes having their lunch eaten, right? So I think that's the biggest issue for them. I mean, these these the European industry has seen two previous big waves of Asian manufacturers coming, right? They've seen the Japanese coming, and then they've seen the Koreans coming. They've both taken very significant share in Europe. But this time is different because this time it is about EVs and the Chinese own the technology in a way that the Europeans don't. And the Chinese have the price elasticity to cope with a price war, to drop the prices if they need to in a way that the Europeans don't because of their higher cost base. And they are genuinely worried that the Chinese incursion, if I can use that word, is going to be far more significant than the Japanese or Korean incursion was at the start. And so uh, you've seen some of the car makers warning about this. But it's quite interesting because for many of the car makers, China is still their breadbasket, right? Volkswagen still makes vast profits out of China. And so you cannot, if you're the boss of Volkswagen, stand up and criticize the Chinese because the Chinese then won't buy your cars. So, And it's the same if you're Mercedes and it's the same if you're BMW. And so it's quite interesting. Those who are shouting loudest about the Chinese risk are those with least to lose from Chinese sales, right? Renault has been very vocal about it. Stellantis has been very vocal about it. Um, and so what they want, they want Europe to do something 
something to try and clip the Chinese wings when they come in. Now, the, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, which we can, we can get onto, has been, I think, a completely game-changing piece of legislation in that it's shown that actually if you're a major economy, you can do protectionism and make it work, right? Because there's the, the, the US uh, Inflation Reduction Act does not give credits, tax credits, to any batteries that come from foreign entities of concern. Is is the is what it, the language is in the act, and that basically is shorthand for China, and so it will penalise American companies that try and use Chinese batteries. Now in Europe, the toothpaste is out of the tube on Chinese batteries. It's too late to try and pull them out of the vehicles and try and try and stop the development of the gigafactories going in. But what the car industry wants here is something from Europe uh, that will uh, enable them at least to have a level playing field with competing with China which is why you've seen this European Commission investigation into Chinese subsidies. The fear is that the Chinese companies in China are getting subsidies from the Chinese government to make the vehicles very cheaply and then sell them at a much lower cost in Europe. That's broadly not happening at the moment if you look at the price that the Chinese cars are selling for in China versus the price they're selling for in Europe. But certainly the European Commission thinks this is an avenue it can use to try and... Uh, push back against the Chinese, whether in real terms with tariffs or whether just in sending a kind of message to people, we are worried about Chinese cars. Because if you look at other industries, you look at the steel industry, you look at uh, other areas, you know, China is very, very powerful in these areas and Europe wants to try and protect its own car industry as much as it can. Politically, what does Europe want to do? I know there are things it, it, it can do, but is this... Is this a war, you know, a trade war they want to start? The, the fundamental problem uh, is that China is so integrated into the world economy that it's uh, you know, if you try and decouple, which you just really can't with China, in a way that you could decouple with Russia, as we saw after Ukraine, but you really can't decouple from China um, without having huge impacts on huge other areas of the way we live and our economies and it's very difficult interestingly what you have seen in the in the months that followed the russia invasion of ukraine was all the car makers everywhere suddenly woke up to the fact that all their bits came from china and the one thing that you heard all the time from car execs talking about russia was thank goodness this isn't china and at that point, the industry started this very quiet but very concerted effort to pull parts out of China and to try and reshore as much of the supply chain as you could back to Europe, back to North America, so that if something happens and the world needs to press a button, they can press a button and de-risk from China. Um, politically, what the Europeans you know, want to do, it's very hard to tell because America has shown that protectionism does work a little bit. But generally, the reason that we're all richer than we were 30 years ago is because of global trade, right? And global trade has involved shipping vast amounts of manufacturing of everything, right? Semiconductors, toys, the whole caboodle to China and to Asia. And it's very hard to pull that back. So China is is way too integrated to cut out completely. And you're right, that makes crafting any serious industrial response to Chinese cars politically incredibly difficult, even if the EU had one mind on this. And let's be honest, the EU never has one mind on anything. Mm. We've touched on history with Japan and Korea, Jackie. What, what, what has history taught us 
when other markets have entered entered the Europe and, and the UK? What are those territories done well? Well, I think just looking at how the the OEMs that, that from from the Chinese market, there are three ways that they're kind of coming in. One is to to buy a brand as they did with MG, so they just bought the brand and, and took it and turned turned that around from you know failing to thriving. Either rebadge, such as Chevrolet in Latin America, um, or the third option is is to partner. So Volkswagen with Xpeng or Leap Motor with Stellantis. So there are lots of partnerships that are emerging, and I think. Just to your point about global trade, Peter, we're not going to cut our nose off to spite our face. I think actually you either, as we do in our in our world, we build by our partner. We can't develop everything ourselves. So we rely heavily on on partners in our ecosystem, as I think the industry relies heavily on partners, and it always has done. So there'll be shared powertrains as there as there used to be with engine manufacturing. And the Chinese you know, battery um, factories have not just sprung up they've been the investment in that happened 20 years ago maybe more but it's it's been a long slow burn and that's kind of evolved so the infrastructure was put in place the the raw materials are are there so actually um i think as any global economy you're looking at how do you where do you get the raw materials for the thing and then sometimes everything comes from various parts around the world and it can be assembled in one market i think it's really interesting you mentioned about america at the minute they've got there's a zero percent like market share of chinese brands in america because they're not manufactured there so you either legislate against it or you you build a factory there and so you can you can overcome that particular hurdle and so i think what we're seeing particularly now across our markets actually is not only are they um the chinese oems are, are looking at how they can bring stock into a ready-made retail network. So we have a huge amount of retailers that are selling and they're entrepreneurial businesses who are facing challenges of existing OEMs wanting to go direct to consumer. And then there are other providers of stock that will allow you to sell that stock directly to the customers that you already have a relationship with. So I think it'll be really interesting. We're seeing quite a lot of the OEMs from the Chinese space coming in with a wholesale model. They want to find retailers or target fleet as an op- as an avenue of, of getting their stock into market. It's cost effective and they're, they're providing a huge amount of stock for fleets that don't want to have to wait necessarily. So I think that's what we're seeing in terms of the work we're doing with those OEMs that are coming into this market is how do we then connect their data into that retail network so the interfaces are there so that consumer journeys are joined up with the right data at the right point. And that's a that's a very smart and a very targeted approach. Totally, yeah. Yeah, because disrupting the retail model is very difficult. These guys know that their um, their competitive advantage lies in batteries and technology, mm-hmm. and they'd much rather hand the retail to someone else who knows what they're doing. Yeah. You made one really interesting point on raw materials, which I'd just like to pick up, which is the other thing China has locked up is the is the raw material networks. You know, not just with deals around lithium supply and supply of other um, rare earths that are needed in batteries in the future, but particularly processing. Mm-hmm. Right? China has something like 95% of all the world's lithium processing. So even if you're an OEM and you're trying to get batteries built where you where you make your cars and you're trying to get lithium offshoots and offcuts, you still have to process the lithium in China. So China has has worked out where the bottlenecks are in this process and is trying to own those in a way that gives China vast control in the future over supply chains for vehicles. And, you know, not wanting to be alarmist, but potentially if you get to a world where maybe there isn't as much lithium as everybody thought there was going to be, maybe you get shortages, you know, does the country that controls the lithium and the processing 
have the first say in where that lithium goes? It probably does. Is it going to give it to the Europeans, the Americans? It's probably not. Peter, should we really be protecting the industry we've got already? Should we be welcoming China and the work it's doing? So car makers are historically always crown jewels of countries in which they're based, right? If you look at the importance of Toyota and Nissan to Japan or the importance of the German car makers uh, to Germany, it doesn't really hold in the UK because we've sold everything. But as a general point, you know, governments are very protective over their car industries. But at the same time, if you look at a pure economics basis, EVs are much more efficient to manufacture. You know, do you want to be fighting to defend a system uh, that uses far more capital to make vehicles than one that's much more efficient? Almost certainly not from an economics point of point of view. Is China able to make these vehicles more efficiently, more cheaply, and are they better than European vehicles? Let's say for sake of argument, yes. Well, then you have to have a pretty good reason to try and hold back the tide on that. Now, yeah, it could be that we want to try and use you know, the Chinese companies here to help the European companies get better in the way that the, the JVs in China help the Chinese get better. It could be we want to try and maybe make the Chinese help us learn more about batteries. Um, that would help the European industry. But you cannot simply just try and put up the gates and keep them out. Um, because ultimately, if you look at you know any industry in the world, trying to hold back technological change and progress and efficiency is not going to end well. Jackie, there are other areas we don't even know about yet where where China could be could be getting ahead with with Chinese electric cars, perhaps in in the after sales world. So that's a really good point, and it's obviously an area that's a big part of our business is how we then um, help retailers manage the vehicles that consumers own and drive. So I think what we're seeing is um, established OEMs that we're working with are looking at how they work more closely with the retail network to repurpose some of those um, like bays that have been historically used for mechanical repair, probably more around, you know, repair, repair, like body shop repair, because we all know that service intervals of EVs are going to be very different. You don't have to replace the, the moving parts are very different in a, in a, battery powertrain than they are with a with a, with an engine. So um so I think that's going to be a really interesting space to see how that evolves and how the the retailers use their space in a in a better way. Um, I think historically we've seen um so the after sale space particularly is where retailers make a lot of their profit as well. So I, I think how have they used their businesses to generate you know, repeat business customers coming back and forth, how they um, launch different mobility as a service will, will be a really interesting space to observe. I wish I had a crystal ball. I can't quite can't quite see how that's going to end up. But it's, um, I think, how we just rethink those spaces, whether it's for charging, for experience centres. We talk about, we've launched Experience First this year. It's about how we not only think about people using the technology we provide, but how they use the spaces and how customers buy from the people that we're working with. So it's not about how you buy, it's how you use and how you then resell to those consumers. So you're in a continual cycle of using your vehicle, thinking about the next thing. And I think, I mean, I have teenagers, so their mobility is going to be very different to how we first bought cars or how we kind of use them if they're living in urban spaces. It's just going to be different again. So, um, so I think it's going to be yeah. There's a, there's a lot of change will be coming and it will continue to come, but that's probably a good thing. Mm. Talk of crystal balls there, Peter. I'm going to see if you've got one. 
tariffs or no tariffs, what do you expect the the ultimate response to be around Chinese cars coming to Europe? Uh, if I had a crystal ball, I would not be here in the studio. I'd be dialing in from my private island. But uh, with that said, I think it's very hard to see the Europeans carrying out this investigation without deciding there needs to be something, right? Whether that's tariffs, whether that's something else, something to try and, you know, Ease the, ease the local car makers in their fight with the Chinese. But fundamentally, I mean, if you look, you guys have done some great work on this in the past. If you look at the differences in price for what the Chinese sell their vehicles at in China versus what they sell that over here, it's either the world's most expensive boat trip or they have enormous capacity for absorbing higher costs when selling in Europe and still making margin on it. So if you're going to put tariffs on, they have to be some whopping big tariffs if you're going to make a real difference. And if you're Europe, you have to be very prepared that those tariffs will lead to retaliation of some sort in the Chinese market. And ultimately, that might not be what the car makers want. Thank you, Peter. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks to Jackie and to Peter for joining us. A brilliant topic, uh, one that will keep us all, well, certainly keep Peter and I very busy. Jackie as well for, for years to come. Um, Thank you very much for listening to this Autocar uh, Business Powerlist 100 podcast sponsored by Keyloop. You can get more from the Powerlist 100 on autocar.co.uk slash business. Thank you for listening and see you next time.